Thank you. Well, I am so glad to finally be here. I was booked to speak in April of 2020, but then our friend COVID, not really our friend, showed up, and so then I think I got bumped to fall of 20, and then that became spring of 21, and now finally it became Ash Friday. <laughs> fall of 2021. Thank you all for braving the whatever it is that's floating through the air and coming. Now, I must say, I was a little tempted to switch what I was going to say this weekend. And when we were driving up that mountain, I thought, well, maybe I should talk about Moses. I feel like I'm ascending up Mount Sinai. <laughs> and then I thought, as I was uh, driving along that windy road, well, you know, maybe I don't need to speak at all because I'm sure all of us who go up that windy road, our spiritual life was really strengthened because I was, you know our prayer life really took off. At least I know mine did. I think I saw Jesus like 17 times. <laughs> but I made it up the mountain. My husband, Todd, is with me. Todd, can you stand up and... My college sweetheart turned husband. We just celebrated 35 years together. Don't do the math. Don't do the math. We were eight and 10 when we got married. Okay. So I did want to tell just a little bit about me. I know uh, Megan said a few things about me, but I want to tell you a little more before I start talking because I know what it's like when you're listening to a speaker for the first time. Because I've been in your shoes, I go to events too. And you should be sitting there thinking about all the wonderful things that God may teach you through his word that weekend. But we're all girlfriends. Let's be honest, you're sort of sizing up the speaker, aren't you? <laughs> Come on. You're wondering all sorts of really spiritual things like, gee, I wonder if she colors her hair. Jessica, do you think she colors her hair? <laughs> so let me just answer that question right out of the chutes and tell you the answer. The answer is no, I do not color my hair. My daughter is an award-winning stylist who owns her own salon and I have her do it for me. <laughs> Our daughter, Kenna, is 30 years old. She lives in Charlotte, North Carolina. We live in Michigan, right in the middle of the mitten. We have our maps with us all the time. You kind of dissed on the tigers, so I'm going to diss on you guys. We have our maps with you all the time. Here's the California map. I live in the armpit. <laughs> so we could say we live in the middle of the mitten where America's high five. But our daughter just married someone we have been telling her she should date for over a decade, someone she knew in high school, so she just got married to him. That's Kenna, Kenna and Jason. Then our next child is Mitchell. He's 26. He, three years ago, married a girl he met online, but wait for it, through my Instagram account because she had done one of my Bible studies. <laughs> she was very strategic. One day I posted and I tagged him and she said, wow, that Miss Karen, the Bible teacher, she has herself a cute son. So she didn't want to feel like she was stalking him, so she strategically liked all the pictures of his Alaskan Malmute puppy. So he just thought she was a dog lover. They started commenting on each other's stuff, and about three months into it, he sent her a private message that said, hey there. <laughs> and she sent one back that said, hey there yourself. She still has a screenshot of it. So they got married three years ago in December, and they're giving us our first grandbaby in January. <laughs> a little boy. Then our youngest son, Spencer, he is 23. He is quite adventurous. About three years ago, he decided to quit his job and backpack all alone 
throughout the United States and Canada for 11 weeks with all the mountain lions and the bears and the whatever. Very adventurous. And then in the late summer, early fall of 2019, he decided to move to Australia, just because he could. Got a two-year work visa, had no idea where he was going to live, no job, didn't know a soul. Took off, loved it, but then, of course, had to come home because of COVID. He got the last flight out of Australia. Very adventurous soul. He is the reason I have to have my daughter, Kenna, cover my grain. <laughs> Let's just leave it at that. Another fact about me is I'm with Proverbs 31 Ministries. How many of you have heard of Proverbs 31 Ministries? Yay! I feel like I'm among friends. So we have an online devotional that goes out to almost 4 million women per day. We also have an app called the First Five app. Any of you do First Five? Yes. So this is an app that helps you spend the first five minutes of every day in God's Word reading a chapter and reading a teaching by one of the people on the staff. I'm one of the people that write it. It's keyed into your alarm clock so that when you swipe off your alarm, instead of going, you know, oh, I think I'll go to Facebook. No, this helps you go put your face in the book because when you swipe off your alarm, the app automatically comes up with that day's reading. So that's first five. And we at Proverbs 31 Industries, people in the staff, um, in the office have been praying for this event by name, praying for all of you. So I'm just really trusting that God's going to do a lot this weekend with us. And probably the last little trivia fact I want to tell you about myself is the fact, well, that I'm kind of a control freak. I'm kind of a control freak. And you would see this fact if you were to go with me to my local coffee house for a cup of coffee because I would walk up to the counter and I would rattle off this very high-maintenance coffee order. Ready for it? It's really good. You should try it sometime. I would like a grande decaf mocha latte made with skim milk with one and a half pumps of almond syrup, one and a half pumps of coconut syrup, light whipped cream, a slight drizzle of chocolate, extra hot, and double cupped, please. That's my high-maintenance coffee order. And then I would step aside so the normal person could step up to the counter and say, I'll have a coffee. Black. Just the way God made it. My poor husband, when he wants to surprise me with one of my coffee drinks, he's so cute because he'll try to describe it to the barista. Yeah, like I know it has skim milk, so it's like a, like a low-fat liquid almond joy. I think that's what she wants. <laughs> Thankfully, now I can just text him what my high-maintenance order is. He can save it as a screenshot and just hand his phone to the barista. That works better. Yes, at my local coffee house, I know just what I want and just how to get it. Wanting our way kind of begins early for a lot of us women. It's almost like we've been wired with some bossy gene or something. Now, not everybody is an all-out control freak in every area of life, but you probably have that one area or that one person that you like to try to control. It starts early, and I've witnessed it in some younger women in the not-so-distant past. One day, my friend Lisa's daughter, Brooke, she was a preteen, she was at my house, she's very competent, she's very controlling, she knows how to get a party planned and executed. She was doing my daughter's 21st birthday party, and a lot of people were there raving about the decorations and the food, and I said, oh, that's all due to little Brookie here. You know, she could run a small country. And without missing a beat, she looked up at me and said, um, no, Miss Karen, a large one. 
And then, not too long after that, I was with my friend Robin, we were driving somewhere, and I was sitting in the back seat, I think we we're going to the mall, and I was sitting in the back seat with her almost two-year-old daughter, Lauren, she was strapped in her car seat playing with a toy, but she had dropped her toy. And so she pointed down to the floor and she said, Miss Karen, Miss Karen, give it, give it. And her mom, of course, wanting to be the good mom, you know, shot her the look in the rear view mirror and said, now, Lauren, what do we say? And she looked at me and she looked at the toy and she said, Miss Karen, give it now. <laughs> we know what we want and we know just how to get it. It's kind of a strength carried to an extreme that now becomes, well, we don't say in our house a weakness, we've learned to say a non-strength. <laughs> Strengths carried to an extreme, they become a non-strength. If you're a very detailed person, you can become overly critical. Maybe you're super spontaneous in the life of the party, but that person, that, that strength can morph into poor time management. Maybe you're great at time management, you know, but then you can kind of be a clock Nazi. Any other clock Nazis out there? We could all get together to meet tomorrow, none of us would be late, right? <laughs> being competent can morph into being controlling, or multitasking can kind of turn into micromanaging. Well, what is at the crux, the root of why we over-control? Why do we do it sometimes? We try to control our circumstances, our appearance, people's opinions of us. We try to control other people, especially those in our four walls. Well, sometimes I think we control because we don't trust God. We think we know better than him just what is best for us. And it doesn't go back just to junior high or toddlerhood, like with Brookie and Lauren. It goes back even farther than that, all the way to the Garden of Eden when the first woman's sort of bossy gene surfaced. Because you see, Satan's MO is to make you think that you know better than God just what is better for you. It's his oldest trick in the book. Literally, in the book. Like, think about Eve for a minute. She lived in paradise with one man, just one. She had no tendency to compare him to Dave, the handy hubby down the street, or Joe up at work, who never forgets his wife's birthday. Since she hadn't birthed any babies, she had no stretch marks. Nor had she had her heart stretched, waiting for that final call to come from the adoption agency. She hadn't faced the pain of an unwanted divorce, the challenges of being a widow, or of dealing with the sometimes insensitive things people say to women who are single. She hadn't been passed over for the promotion, left out of the circle of friends. No, her life, physically and emotionally, was perfect. She'd never seen another man, so think about the reverse of that. Adam had never seen another woman, let alone all the airbrushed images that come out of Hollywood. Someone once said to me, just think about it. Adam had never seen another woman. He was staring at the back end of a donkey all day. So when he came home to her, boy, she looked mighty fine. He thought she was flawless. And God had even told Eve that she could eat of any of the trees in that beautiful garden, except for one. So let's pick up the story in Genesis 2. If you have a Bible, you can turn to it. If you have an app on your phone, you can tap your way there to Genesis 2. Don't go over to Instagram and start liking pictures. We're going to Genesis 2. 
verses 15 through 16. And it says this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge and good, of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now don't let that word helper throw you. A lot of women say, I don't like the Bible's view of women. Helper? Like that sounds like hamburger helper. Like, you know, something you put together when you don't have anything great for dinner. And then other people joke and say, of course he made her a helper. Men need help. They never stop and ask for directions, right? That's not what the word helper means here. The actual Hebrew word is ezer, E-Z-E-R, if you want to wow your friends that you know a Hebrew word. And it's the same exact word that is used later in Psalm 3320 to describe God helping us. A better translation, a best translation, is a strong ally. She is a strong ally. So he makes this helper for him. No animals will do, so he makes Eve. I'm kind of condensing the story a little bit because we have a lot of scripture to cover tonight. So then we're going to pick up reading it in chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God has made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, that would be the middle, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, huh, you will surely not die. At least my footnote puts the hunt in. I don't know if yours does. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and it was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Now, I don't know what it's like out here in California, but in the Midwest, when you're naked, it means you have no clothing on. When you're naked, it means you have no clothing on and you're up to something. <laughs> so we don't know if they were naked or naked or maybe both. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So here we have the first buck naked man passing the first buck. When he's confronted, what does he say? Oh, it wasn't me. It was the woman. Hey. 
the woman you gave me. It's almost like he blames God, too. Then when Eve is confronted, she doesn't take any of the blame either. She says, oh, well, it was the serpent. He gave me the fruit, so I ate. Now, have you ever wondered what was that fruit? Usually in art pictures, it's depicted as an apple. Most Bible scholars think it was a pomegranate. Other Bible scholars, they think real logically, and this one kind of makes sense to me, that it was a fig, because what did they make themselves clothed out of? Fig leaves, they must have been right there. Well, I don't want to, you know, not look up to any Bible scholars and what they think, because they're way smarter than me, but I don't think it was any of those things. I think it was an orange. <laughs> Seriously. Like one of those dark chocolate foil-covered whack-open oranges that Todd puts in my stocking every year at Christmas? That might have made me cause, you know, sin to enter the world by the temptation to eat it. I'm not going to go for a Fig Newton. I'm going to think it was a dark chocolate whack-open orange. Notice Satan's words to Eve. Did, did God actually say? Stealthily, that line of creeping, or that creep, that line of thinking creeps into our thinking, doesn't it? And we think, oh, did God actually say that? And then we start to control because we don't trust God. Now, it would seem that Satan tempted Eve with fruit. He kind of did. But what he really tempted her with was wrong theology. Theology is just a fancy word for how we think about God. But I had it pointed out to me once, oh my goodness, it's probably been 20 years ago. Now I went to a, a seminar uh, called Unveiling Glory, and the speaker there talked about the two kinds of theology that we as Christians have. Sometimes we have a little wonky theology, even though we are believers. And to make it easy to explain and remember, they called it this, dog theology or cat theology. So let me explain it to you. Think about a dog and how a dog interacts with its master. Master comes home at the end of the day. He's like, you're home, you're home. Lick, 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 slobber, slobber, slobber. I love you, I love you. Can I get you your slippers? How about your newspaper? I'm so excited you're here. And a dog thinks about its master this way. You love me. You feed me. You scratch my neck, you rub my belly, you provide for my every need. Whoa, you must be God. <laughs> okay? Now, at the risk of offending any cat lovers out there, let's think about a cat for a minute. How does a cat act when you come home at the end of the day? They're sitting, you know, sunning themselves in a patch of sunshine on your favorite chair. They don't even notice you've come in the door. They barely bother to get up. They just look and go, oh, you, yeah, are you home? Hmm. Well, you know, I was just uh, sitting here thinking about you. And I thought of something. You love me. Well, you feed me. You scratch my neck. You rub my belly. You provide for my every need. Wow. <laughs> I must be God. <laughs> See the difference? You know, sometimes we're just lounging on the easy chair of life like a cat, waiting for God to get with our program, rather than faithfully and obediently obeying our masters. We know this weekend we're going to be on a journey together to try to learn how to stop running the show and start walking in faith instead and stop pondering 
like our ancient ancestor Eve, you know, did God actually say, like, I have a better idea. Like, I want to make some suggestions to God. Do you ever make suggestions to God for what he should do? Cat theology. So to kind of illustrate this, I want you to do something. I'm not going to make you embarrassed, so don't, don't start panicking. People who don't like to be the center of attention, not going to be the center of attention, but I do want you to do something. If you have anything in your lap, you're holding anything, put it down, because you need your arms free. So what I want you to do while I'm up here talking is just to fold your arms. Just to sit there and fold your arms for a second, okay? Now, when I take a drink of water because my mouth feels like parchment and ash, <laughs> but it's Ash Friday, so hey, a little ash is good. Without thinking about it, when I count to three, I want you to fold your arms the other way. Don't think about it, just do it. One, two, three, do it. We'll wait for you, Megan. You need a second? Oh, she's got it. Okay, sit there for a second. Does it feel weird? Yes. Really strange. Okay, go back the other way. Ah, oh, so much better. Okay, ready? One, two, three, switch them. And hold them there a second. Does that not feel awkward? Well, that's how it's going to feel when you try to stop having cat theology and you have dog theology instead and you let God be God and you realize that you are not. Okay, you can put your arms away because I don't want to cause anybody mental harm. <laughs> but what did you notice about that? It's uncomfortable, but you all did it. It can be done. It just feels weird at first because that's not how your brain's wired. It has something to do with left brain, right brain. And it's not how you've been doing it your whole life. It just feels awkward, but it can be done. You know, God is not some heavenly barista perched up on a cloud just waiting for our high-maintenance order of how we want life to go. He's God. You are not. He just called, and he'd like his job back. That's what we're going to do this weekend. We're going to say God called, and he'd like his job back. Well, sometimes we over-control because we're bossy. We have that bossy gene. Other times we have this do-over gene. Like, we just wish that we could have do-overs in life because something didn't quite go right. Anybody wish there were do-overs? You know, like when you're doing bubblegum, bubblegum in addition, you think someone cheated, you say, wait, I called do-overs. Or you think back about your life, your greatest regret, like, I really regret quitting piano lessons. Only took three years. I can only play two songs. Wish I had do-overs. Or when I look back at pictures, I gotta say, the 90s hair, I wish I had do-overs. What was I thinking? Like my bangs were puffed up about yay high. But that was, you know, the higher the better back in the 90s. Sometimes we wish we had do-overs in life. And it can be kind of dangerous, especially for people who are married. I find that often there are women who wish they had do-overs. So they go look up somebody from their past on Facebook. I've had three friends now do this, left their families to go have do-overs in life. Now, I've never wanted to look up anybody on Facebook. But if I'm honest, there are some times that I think, what in me ever thought it was a good idea to marry that man? <laughs> right? Now, don't get me wrong. Get me wrong. My husband, and I'm going to cry, he is godly, he is patient, he is laid back, I think he's stinking cute. <laughs> but there are some times that those things that first attracted me to him they're now the very things that drive me nuts. 
Can I get an amen so I don't feel alone? Sisters, my soul sisters right there. I loved that he was laid back. Laid back, agreeable, go with the flow, easygoing Todd. But about three months into our marriage, I thought, he's kind of passive. Like, I wish you'd just do something, make a decision every now and then. Of course, I didn't realize I was making all of them for us, so. But I would think, come on, you're so passive. It made me get aggressive. I guess you could say we have a passive-aggressive marriage. But he would say, if I were to let him come up here, which I'm not going to, um, (laughs) he would say that what first attracted him to me was the fact that I could talk. He said, I loved how you could work a room, you could make all the shy ones feel included, you could talk to everybody from the college president on down to the bag boy at the grocery store. Boy, could you talk. But then about three days into our honeymoon, (laughs) he had this thought, when is she ever gonna shut up? (laughs) In fact, that sweet man right there, he told me not too long ago, that if I pass away before he does, he has already decided what he is going to put on my tombstone. Are you ready for it? A period. (laughs) She's finally done talking. It is finished. It was a cold night in our house that night he told me that with no, shall we say, um, horizontal fellowship, if you're tracking with me. (laughs) But if I'm honest, I sometimes think, gosh, it would be nice to have do-overs. I'm sure that if I had just been patient and waited a little longer before marrying my college sweetheart three weeks after college ended, God would have brought me along the perfect man. And I know exactly what he would have been like. He would have had the brains and the money of Elon Musk the genuine compassion and contagious enthusiasm of Ty Pennington. You know that guy from that makeover show? Like, he's always like, oh, let me listen to your problems, and hey, you can do it, go, go, girl! (laughs) Certainly, he would have had the courage and quick thinking of Tom Cruise in any Mission Impossible movie. The romantic singing voice of Josh Groban, but best of all, he would have been the spiritual equivalent of Billy Graham all wrapped up in George Clooney's body. (laughs) Okay, that comment showed my age. You older ones think Harrison Ford. You younger ones, I don't know, lots to choose from. Let's go with Michael B. Jordan, right? Well, the composite of that man I described is a very selfish one. It's everything I want. All the things I think I want. We have the bossy gene. Sometimes we have the me first gene. I want to put me first in what I think I need in life. Well, we're going to touch just for a little bit as we close here on one other character in Genesis who was a little bit of a control freak. It is Sarah. And we first meet her in Genesis 11, if you want to flip or tap your way there, where she's not Sarah, she's Sarai, different name. Genesis 11, 29 and 30 says this, And Abram, who would later become Abraham, And Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, and the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren, she had no child. I struggled a little bit when we were first trying to have kids. I had a miscarriage. I've walked through 
infertility with a lot of friends, I know it can be very heartbreaking, and maybe some of you in this room are going through that. But it was even more heartbreaking in the culture back then because you were judged by how many babies you could pop out. And poor Sarai, she hadn't popped out a single one. Then in Genesis 12, we learn a new fact, that God had a chat with Abraham, who is Abram still at this time, and told him that he was going to be the father of many nations and that through him, all the nations would be blessed. We read that in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, if you want to go look it up later. And this must have caused a lot of conflict in Sarai's mind. I mean, how could Abram be the father of many nations when she hadn't even popped out a single baby yet? And the old biological clock was getting pretty loud. Now, Sarai did have a lot going for her by the, in the way of looks. Twice in Genesis 12, in verses 11 and 14, her great beauty is mentioned. In fact, her husband was so afraid that the Egyptians would want her so badly that they would kill him if they knew that she was his wife. So he had her tell, well, it wasn't really a lie, it was a half-truth. He said, say you're my sister. Now, if you do the genealogy, you see in other parts of scripture, she was his half-sister. She was the daughter of his father, though not of his mother, is what it says. But like we tell our kids, a half-truth is still a whole lie. Now, I find this a little bit humorous, all of this talk of Sarah being so strikingly beautiful, because if you crunch the numbers, she was about 65 at the time. She must have been slathering out a lot of that Old Testament oil of Olay. <laughs> but her outward beauty, it couldn't erase the inward fact that she was barren, and it was heartbreaking. So her me-first gene kicked in, and she came up with a plan. You see, she had this maidservant and this bright idea. She thought, oh, I know what God must have meant. Did he actually say I was going to have a baby? Oh, no, no, no. Hey, husband, go sleep with my maidservant. That'll pop me out a baby, which she did. Now, before we're too hard on her, that was actually a very common practice of the day, although God never told her to do it, right? So out pops Ishmael. And then a lot of drama ensues. She's voted off the island, her and her son, they wander away, then they come back. God's original plan still stands in Genesis 17. God not only reminds the couple of his plan, that you're going to be the father of many, he also changes both of their names to further drive home the point. I found this very interesting when studying it. Sarai, her name gets changed to Sarah in Genesis 17, verse 15, Sarai means my princess, as in belonging to one person. But Sarah means the princess of many. Abram, he changes his name in chapter 17, verse 5. Abram means exalted father. Abraham means the father of multitudes. He says this plan still stands. You're going to be the father of many. They don't believe him. Instead, you know what they did? They grabbed their phones and they tweeted out, ROTF, LOL, rolling on the floor, laughing out loud. It says they laughed. But God's plan still stands. Finally, 10 chapters into the story, we see the long-awaited birth of Isaac, which happens in Genesis 21, verses 1 through 3. And then perhaps the most popular story about Abram and his son Isaac, he does what? He goes to offer him as a sacrifice in chapter 22. But at the last second, God provides a ram. Now, some scholars say that when, he told, when God told Abram, Abraham now, 
to offer his son as a sacrifice, that word as meant like. Like he really didn't want him to kill him. I'm not saying I agree with that or you agree with that. I just thought it was interesting that he may have misinterpreted. God wanted him to go up on the mountain maybe and dedicate his son, not actually kill him. But Abram, now Abraham, thought he was supposed to kill him. But at the last minute, God provides a ram. And what I've thought is the most astonishing part of the story, you know, it's not the fact that Abraham would obey God and actually go sacrifice his son. It's not the fact that, think about this, Isaac wasn't a baby like you see in a lot of the pictures. He was a teenager by now. And that's kind of astonishing. Like my kids, my boys especially, they respect and love their father, but no way were they going to get their own firewood and march up a mountain, you know, thinking, this guy could kill me. This could be like one of those creeper shows, those horror movie shows, you know. That's not the most astonishing fact. It's not even the most astonishing fact that maybe he misheard God and God said, like a sacrifice, not, you know, actually make him a sacrifice. What's the most astonishing part to me is that Sarah is surprisingly absent from this story. Every time you read about Abraham, Abram, before his name was changed, she's right there. She's part of the story. She's, you know, going along with the plans, but she's strangely absent. Why? Perhaps had she learned to control her emotions and not try to control the situation all the time. Maybe she had learned, her faith had grown so strong that she realized that God could do anything, even raise her son from the dead. Maybe she finally learned how to stop trying to run the show and start walking in faith instead. And the last mention we ever have of Sarah in the Bible is in 1 Peter 3, 5, verses 5 through 7. It says she was a holy woman who hoped in God and that we are her children if we do not fear anything that is frightening. I know a lot of you have things that are frightening in your life. Let's take a cue from, from Sarah and not fear anything that is frightening. Let's also make a, take another cue from her. Let's learn to take God at his word and trust his timing. I'm not trying to make the situation happen in our own way. And let's also learn that just because society says something is right doesn't make it right in God's eyes. But also, if we do behave in a way that makes us want do-overs in life, let's learn to turn our predicament into purpose. Or have you, as you may have heard said, I think it's a little corny, but I like it. Let God turn your mess into your message. That predicament into purpose. Well, you know, over a quarter century of marriage, now 35 years of marriage, has taught me that my husband and I, we are never going to agree about things. In fact, we joke all the time that if we were to go on an online dating site, it would never match us up. The screen would blink bright red saying, do not date that person, they will drive you crazy. We're not going to agree on how to roll the toilet paper, you know, what way to put the roll. And you know what, you guys, don't fight about stuff like that. That is not worth fighting about which way to put the toilet paper roll on, Okay. Because anybody with any sense knows it come, goes with the paper coming off the front, right? <laughs> Don't give your toilet paper a mullet. It doesn't go in the back. <laughs> but I am now so glad that I have a husband who is not the perfect husband that I could describe. Because you know why? Because having an imperfect husband keeps me on my knees. 
If my husband were perfect, or if your job was perfect, or your roommate was perfect, or your children were perfect, and your house was perfect, you would have no need for God. So let's learn to embrace that imperfection in the people in our life and the things in our life. And instead of letting them drive us nuts, let's let them drive us straight to Jesus. So I want you to think tonight, even if you want to write it down, if you've got a paper and pencil there, put it in your phone and your notes app. I want you to think tonight of one imperfect part of your life that's driving you nuts. Okay, write it down. I'm going to take a swig and let you do it. What is driving you nuts or who is driving you nuts? If the person next to you knows the who, shield yourself so you don't, they don't see what you're right. Will you be so bold as to let that person, that thing, that situation stop driving you nuts and drive you straight to Jesus instead? Then you will be one step closer to a woman who isn't trying to run the show. She's trying to learn, like Sarah, how to walk in faith. Thanks so much for listening.